Greetings, citizens, and greetings, Tropic Cyclone. I'm actually going to start with a message to you, Tropic Cyclone, because you seem to be suffering without my attention. So, although I'm sure you know by now, I will make the announcement official. I am the Cavalier, the only Cavalier. After I completely humiliated the Ballard clone, it committed suicide. I borrowed the corpse long enough to drag it to Monaco, and had it verified that he was not, in fact, the original Cavalier. That was also when I found out he was a clone, not the real Dr. Ballard at all. For an insane menace, his puppet master seems to be quite skilled at keeping dangerous research off the books. I guess I'm going to have to see if the real Brent's been killed, but that can wait until I watch the news and record this episode. So congratulations, you were correct. Also, the Kraken is definitely a sea monster and not a titan. You spend over 30 years having to substitute meditation for sleep. See how many times you confuse a couple of words. But you also made it seem like I put the raiding party into Kraken in severe danger. And that's just not true. They were in less danger than the criminals who broke out of prison a couple months back. Sure, their destination was isolated and inhospitable, particularly for Atlanteans and a sea monster but they were safe enough until you could lead them out. The point was simply to keep you out of my hair, and force you to return to Atlantis, if only briefly. Hopefully keeping your grandfather out of trouble in the process. Since he hasn't declared war on Argo, and the rest of humanity, I suppose it worked. I'm sure you've been watching my many recent exploits, and you claim I love to gloat, but I must admit the real excitement is happening right now. You see, Emerald Siren has made a dramatic reappearance fighting a well-armed norm of all things. Remember the chump in a box? The Ballard Group's CFO turned bank robber? Well, he escaped from prison, along with pretty much every inmate that survived the explosion, and now they're rampaging across the desert with some pilfered Argo weaponry, and some highly illegal genetic monstrosities Ballard's clone had been cooking up. I really wish... <laughs> oh, hey, cameraman's confused, but if you slow it down, I'm sure that was Creed. I finally tracked him down last week, by the way. He's still got some issues to work out. I mean, you're never going to know what we dealt with in the Wastes. And you'll never know what Nightmare has done to Creed since her return, either. Oh, yeah, turns out Chump in a Box is possessed by Nightmare. I probably should have figured that out before now, except everyone, including Creed and Emerald Siren, claimed she was dead. But, well, clearly Creed's back in action, and... Ouch! Just a... a little angry, it seems. So where was I? Um, oh right, Jade Phoenix. No, she's not going to be dropping a building on anyone anytime soon, but you were the first to admit the value of her kind on this show. You have no idea how many people she's saved during the invasion. And each fight more dangerous to her than anything we faced during that situation. I also saw that she broke your nose, you don't seem to have succeeded in your goal, and she's still breathing. Sounds like enough of a win to me. Maybe if I give her one of the fake cavalier suits? Oh, that's what I'm forgetting. You were making fun of my fashion sense. And no mention that I have both arms again? No mention of how Sid looks more like a horse now? And I'm sure this wouldn't enter your little head, but, uh, it is about 60 pounds lighter. That's my personal favorite new feature. Anyway, I think that gets us all caught up, and... Hey, Siren, he wasn't a clone, you stupid... Some answers would have been nice. At least they have things well in hand, I guess. Let's just get on with the movies, shall we? 
So, my first movie is the second in Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy. It is called The Dark Knight. The movie starts by showing us the robbery of a mob-owned bank. The crime is clearly planned to absurd detail. The first movie made an effort to have a complete lack of metahuman powers. This one, not so much. At least not if you count having the screenwriter on your side as a superpower. So the robbery introduces us to the Joker, the villain in this movie. The Joker has a plan to throw all of Gotham into chaos and prove, I guess, that not everyone is good all the time? Or, as Bruce Wayne's butler Alfred says, some men just want to watch the world burn. Meanwhile, Rachel, the woman Bruce Wayne never dated in the first movie, is now actually dating Harvey Dent, Gotham's new district attorney, and her boss. Seriously, dating your boss is dumber than dating Batman. Dent is an obsessed crusader, trying to put every villain in Gotham behind bars personally. Clearly nothing like the man she decided was too obsessive to date. After a dozen or so more crimes go off without a hitch, the Joker manages to get captured, which, might I add, is also part of his overall plan. While he is captured, some of his spies in the police force kidnap Dent and Rachel. They put them in bomb-rigged warehouses on opposite sides of the city. James Gordon and some other policemen go to rescue Rachel. Batman goes to rescue Dent. Gordon fails. Batman almost entirely succeeds. Except that Dent gets half his face melted off. While this is going on, the Joker escapes. He blows up a hospital and demands that Gotham be evacuated, or he's going to blow up everything. Oh, and he suggests that he has rigged the bridges and tunnels out of the city with explosives, so naturally everyone has to take ferry boats. The mayor loads one ferry boat with all the prisoners Dent managed to convict. The other seems to be mostly Gotham's wealthier citizens, but this is barely even hinted at. And, to no one's surprise, the Joker has managed to actually rig both ferries to explode. Each ferry is also given a trigger for the bomb on the other ferry. If one ferry doesn't agree to blow up the other, they both blow up. But Batman ignores it entirely and goes after the Joker instead. Since the Joker seems to have an endless supply of insanely loyal henchmen, and is therefore nearly impossible to find, Batman rigs every cellular phone in the city into some sort of sonar device in order to find him. The morality of this decision is debated in excruciating detail, for some reason. He finds the Joker, and it turns out to be a relatively easy fight. Meanwhile, Dent has gone a little nutty and kidnapped Gordon's wife and child. It seems he blames Gordon and the Batman for Rachel's death, so he wants to punish them. Batman shows up and saves the day, but Dent dies in the process. And it seems Dent has been killing a bunch of people to get to Gordon's family. So Gordon and Batman agree that if word got out that Dent went crazy, his convictions may be overturned on appeal. Which is probably true. So rather than do the logical thing and blame the Joker, they agree to blame the Batman. Because what Gotham needs is a scapegoat, not, you know, someone helpful. And Batman wants to be that scapegoat, not, you know, helpful. That brings us to the end of the movie. Now I admit this movie was terrific. The actor playing the Joker was very believable, even if his crimes were not. And most of the explosions and guns and car chases are so entertaining, you're not too worried about Batman's throat problems. So, what can we learn from this brainless yet delightful romp? 1. Never trust a politician. Gotham's mayor puts an entire prison on the first ferry out, because losing those prisoners would lose him some votes. Among, you know, whoever survived the resulting riots and explosions. Good going, Mr. Mayor. Real class act. 2. 
Yes, some people really do just want to watch the world burn. It is also entirely possible an unstoppable comet will destroy us all tomorrow. Carry a fire extinguisher and find a good therapist, Bruce. And get that throat issue looked into while you're at it. And three, detective work requires a lot of effort and luck, and you're still likely to be wrong. It's like playing connect the dots with 70% of the dots missing. Shrike's not paranoid. He's just a skilled but over-enthusiastic dot connector. My next film is called The Amazing Spider-Man 2. So back we go to Peter Parker, your world's most inept teenager. In the previous movie, Peter promised Gwen Stacy's dying father he wouldn't date her. That promise didn't even last until the credits. But it seems Peter is troubled by his decision to, you know, lie to a dying man. We begin with them having a lover's spat over the phone while Spider-Man stops the heist of some explosive plutonium. <sighs> they break up and get back together like four times during this movie's two and a half hours. Let's just say it's a typical teenage love affair and assume they're bickering about stupid things during the whole movie. Come to think of it, I lied. The movie actually opens with a lengthy scene of Peter's parents dying. It seems they double-crossed Oscorp to save the world, and got assassinated for their efforts. Peter eventually figures out most of this during the movie, but it's really there just to pad the runtime, and I guess kind of explain why Peter survived a mutant spider attack? So where was I? Oh, right, Spider-Man and the Plutonium Heist. During this, he saves the life of an Oscorp employee named Max Dillon. Max, it turns out, is an obsessed fan. Saving his life means, to Max, that Spider-Man and he are best buds. Max continues with these delusions right up until his birthday, when an absolutely ludicrous accident almost kills him. I... I have things to say about insurance being cheaper than workers' comp lawsuits, but, uh... I guess I'll just chalk that up to Max's boss being a complete tool. Anyway, the accident gives Max some very impressive, if ill-defined, powers. It also leaves him very confused and angry. He wanders into Times Square, causing a lot of property damage along the way. Spider-Man shows up and tries to calm him down. Unfortunately, he's in a typical teenage love affair and is too distracted to remember Max's name. And that manages to destroy what little hold Max had on reality. So Max attacks him. This particular fight scene is fairly well shot, but I want to mention something else about it. This is the one place in the soundtrack where the music mirrors anyone's thoughts, and it mirrors Max's. Over the sound of an electronic chorus and distant drums, Max's voice just rants and raves. It's a conceit you might not expect to work, but it is very effective. Sadly, it is never repeated. This movie would have been much better played as an electronic opera. So Spidey manages to defeat Max and have him shipped off to an asylum that can hold such powerful beings. And we have finally passed the first hour of this movie. After this, Peter's friend Harry Osborne shows up. It seems Harry's father, the head of Oscorp, is dying of a mysterious genetic disorder. Norman wants Harry to take over Oscorp, and also wants to tell Harry he will also die of this disorder. Norman dies immediately after unloading this information, and then Harry immediately starts to show symptoms. Panicked, Harry figures out that Spider-Man's blood might cure him of his condition. You can, uh... you should really be able to figure out what happens next. 
After failing repeatedly to get Spider-Man's blood, Harry's borderline insanity gets him removed as Oscorp's CEO. But not before he discovers that the next best thing to Spider-Man's blood is stored in the basement of Oscorp's headquarters. And not before learning who Max is and what he has become. So Harry breaks Max free and asks him to help break into Oscorp and then kill Spider-Man. With the help of a children's science program and Gwen Stacy, Spider-Man finally manages to defeat Max, who is by now calling himself Electro. The mutant Spider-Venom, of course, fails to instantly cure Harry. In fact, it seems to compound the problem. So Harry grabs a handy power suit and decides to go kill Spider-Man himself. He too fails, but he does manage to kill Gwen using gravity. I do believe this is the first movie where a major protagonist is killed using gravity. The end. So what can we learn from this decent but sloppy sap fest? 1. Plutonium is not volatile. It takes enormous effort and an entirely separate explosion to cause plutonium to explode. Actually, you learn the opposite in this movie. Considering science is important to the plot, it's... it's the worst science I have seen in your movies. 2. Billion, even trillion dollar corporations don't need to assassinate scientists. They already control the flow of information. It's built into being the money behind the research. Suspicious murders are much more damaging to stock prices than a couple random whistleblowers with minimal proof. Oh wait, the movie got that bit wrong too. And three. Failing to save someone from death is enough to make you want to quit, at least for a little while. But, as Tropic Cyclone said, you can't hang up the mask. It uh, doesn't stop calling you. And it may not be obvious, but you will fail to save someone at some point in your career. You may even be the accidental cause of some deaths. Norms? Norms are everywhere, and they are much, much more fragile than you are. And they are often the targets of your equally powerful adversaries. And somehow... Somehow this is what The Amazing Spider-Man 2 gets right. And that brings us to a very simple demographics watch. It is perhaps the saving grace of reviewing two sequels. The Dark Knight brings us just one white male villain. The Amazing Spider-Man 2 brings us one black male villain and two white male villains. I'm actually going to count the guy in the rhino suit at the end. Just cause that was a cool suit. This brings our totals to... Heroes, 57 white males, 14 white females, 6 Asian males, 1 Asian female, 7 black males, 3 black females, 1 Maori male, 1 Hispanic male, 1 Native American male, and 1 Native American female. Villains, 45 white males, 11 white females. For villains we have 45 white males, 11 white females, 3 black males, one black female, seven Asian males, two Asian females, one Hispanic male, two Hispanic females, and one Native American male. I believe that's all for now. Tune in again in two weeks, when Tropic Cyclone will try to remind you how scary and important she is. Remember that past episodes can be found at our blog at superfrenemies.com, also on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iTunes. You can leave comments at our blog, or send email to thecavalier at superfrenemies.com or tropiccyclone at superfrenemies.com. I'm going to watch the rest of this live report, then track down a few missing CEOs. But right now, I finally get to do this bit right again.
stay good, citizens. And until next time, I am the Cavalier.